listening to After the Encore, the music podcast that explores what happens after the music fades, what happens after the encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and on today's episode, I speak to Owen Thomas, who is the lead singer for The Elms. The Elms were this eclectic Britpop-sounding group in 2001. They released an album, The Big Surprise, with Sparrow Records. They released another album with them, Truth, Soul, Rock and Roll, which is the namesake for this volume, Volume 4, because we're talking about an artist's truth, about their soul and their basis in religion or spirituality or Christian music and the rock and roll of it all. So that's what we are encompassing in this volume. And Owen is somebody that I was really excited to talk to because getting to speak with him was the genesis for this overall volume. We've got a lot of great individuals on this volume, um, but getting to talk to Owen really anchored it in this idea of starting in a religious institution growing up, having that Christian music label, moving away from that, what does that all look like on a personal and a professional level. And so Owen and I dig into that. We dig into the elms, we dig into spirituality, we dig into his work with other artists, using what he's learned to help inform them in their decisions. It's a great conversation, and I know you're going to enjoy it. So stick around. We'll be right back with Owen after this. You're listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and it is not a big surprise who I'm here with. I'm here with Owen Thomas, lead singer of the Elms. Owen, how's it going, man? How are you? Good. You kicked us right off with a pun, I tell you. I tell you, go right at it with the pun. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm good, man. It's good, it's good to see you. It's good to see you as well. I couldn't help it. The buzzing just wouldn't stop. I mean, it, you know, that we're talking about my phone specifically. It's not a great connection. All right, all right, we're done. I, I'm due for one one pun per episode, and I've maxed it out with two. But, but Owen, I'm really excited, um, probably a little extra excited for this episode. I mean, this whole volume, this volume four, uh, True Soul and Rock and Roll, is, uh, in my opinion, it was, it was anchored or is anchored in your story and the story of the Elms because the Elms were part of the first concert experience I ever went to. Oh, wow. And it was such a formative time in my life. Mm-hmm. It was so incredible. It means a lot to me, and and we're going to get into that, and I'm excited to dig into it. Um, But what I think is interesting as well about the Elms has been this kind of evolution of the group from this kind of Britpop-sounding group, which it evolves into more of kind of a bluesy feel. And then even your solo record reminded me of kind of early White Stripes with it was like this kind of dark pop music, but, you know, had a lot to say. And so there's there's a ton there, and I know there's a ton of experiences and stories to to dig into. But I, I want to kick it off and really kind of ground the episode in in a question. And so, Owen, I would like to ask you, what does music mean to you? Well, that's a that's a good question. I think I think 
I think to me, music is sort of um, one piece of a very noble cause, <laughs> and that and that noble cause to me is 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 the cause of the artist. Um, and I feel like, in addition to playing music myself, making music myself, my life is really committed to the health and the fertility of artists um, of all disciplines. And so what music means to me is I think it's a, a wonderful, impactful, emotional tool for, for being able to be truthful with people and have um, a, the fortification of, uh, of emotion. <clears throat> I heard T-Bone Burnett say recently that um, a melody is a, is a cauterized inflection. And I thought that was really, really, really cool. So every time I go into making a song with an artist or something like that, I always think about that. It's like, hey, don't forget, we're not, we're not just trying to impress here. We're trying to connect. So anyways, that's what music means to me. It's, it's one tool in the arsenal of the artist. And I feel like um, a very, very small percentage of people who get to live and walk the earth are, are born with that wonderful calling of being an artist. So it, music has meant a lot to me you know, in my life. And it's, and it's been a huge part of it. Yeah. I absolutely love that. And I think what's so eloquent about what you talked about is this ability, this innate ability to not only have something to say, but a specific way in which to say it, which leaves an impression. Yeah. Um, and then speaking from personal experience, I mean, you're talking about music meaning a lot and being a huge part of your life and your music had a significant impact on my life and my interactions, you know, and you're welcome. And it's something that sticks with us as we go. And it's such a, I think art in general sticks with us. But when I think about music as this living, breathing body of work and how it can exist in spaces um, whether it's just an individual, whether there's multiple people and there's this connective tissue that runs through everyone. And, you know, I talk about, we not only engage with music, we, we let it simmer with us. We, we swirl it around. We, you know, we use words such that you would think about like a wine tasting or, or a good conversation. I mean, there's a lot of ways in which we can do this with music and it has this profound ability to, to scientifically make someone remember memories that are lost and in a, in a feeling way connects you to somebody through Zoom or in person. Or when I think about being at a concert and feeling the energy in the room swirling around, it makes you feel that you are a part of something bigger than yourself. Absolutely. It's, it's special. And I absolutely. It's special stuff, isn't it? <clears throat> I mean, we yes. have to like. No, it's absolutely good. We get a we 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 get to assign value to things in our lives, and I think that you know it, it's like that that experience, that empathy, and that community, and, and that that's that's probably my favorite part of all this. And that's you know when I whether it's my work or my own personal work or work with others, <clears throat> it's always um, we feel like we're in the feelings business. You know what I mean? That's kind of how it feels with our yeah. studio. And yes. Stuff <laughs> You're looking to create these um, scenes, these little cinematic moments in time, and 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 
And if you do that right, then it's not just like, hey, you got a fan, but in, it just feels like in a deep way you connected with somebody in, on, a, on, a, on a human level that is important, that maybe encourage them or help them take one more step forward in their day or something. You know what I mean? So that's the really, I think um, that's why I kind of like what I said earlier. It's such a noble calling. There's another quote that I love by Robert Schumann, who was a, a German composer, and he said, um, to shine light into the darkness of men's hearts. This is the duty of the artist, you know? And so I, uh, yeah. I feel like all those moments that you're talking about were indelible moments that artists were present and truthful and tried to do their level best to, to, to connect with you, hopefully. You know? <laughs> yes. Yes. No, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And I'm excited to dig into what, um, what it has, what music and specifically the Elms has yeah. meant to me uh, in my formative years for sure. And we'll get into that, but I do, I do want to kind of, let's wind the clock back a little bit into some of your earliest, um, your earliest forays into music. So I do know that your brother Christopher was in the band, the Elms with you as well. So obviously you, you and your brother, you've got that connection, but what was it like for you and the both of you growing up? You're from uh, Missouri and then moved to Indiana. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. I Where's it the other way? I grew up in Buffalo, New York. Um, Buffalo, New York. Okay. Yeah, and then moved to Missouri when I was about eight years old. Uh, my parents' work took us there. My dad uh, worked in churches doing music. And my parents were both vocal performance majors. They had degrees in music, and so we're always doing music. And so when I moved to – my brother and I moved to Missouri when, we, when I was eight years old, and that's where I met – that's the year that I met Tom, who would ultimately be the – Right. The guitar player in the band. So, um, you know, we we just, you know, <laughs> we always had a drum set and we always had um, a piano. I didn't pick up the guitar till I was probably 14, but we, you know, it was just always um, very musical house. And, 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 and there was everything from spiritual music to uh, rock music. Um, my dad sitting and playing the piano and the accordion. He's a little Welsh guy, so he's got a his, history and sort of, uh, it's almost like Gaelic music, um, Brit British Isles, you know, so he, he, he knew these old spirituals on his, um, and, and traditional Welsh hymns and songs on his accordion. So yeah, I remember all of that stuff. And then, uh, you know, I, my, my first time sort of playing in a band was was in church whenever I was probably about uh, 15. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. So what, what instruments were you playing? So you said, um, when did you first pick up the guitar? Yeah, I picked up the guitar when I was about 14. I had, I had been a really... Um, okay. a, my primary instrument when I was growing up through elementary and middle school and high school was, um, was the saxophone. And, um, oh, nice. yeah, I was a first chair sax player and was really, really, really into it. And, and, um, you know, I was good. I was, I don't know. I don't know what, whatever. <laughs> you know, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But when I, uh, when I turned 18, I had gotten a, a scholarship to go play sax at a school, but kind of the early uh, stages of the Elms was beginning to become a touring enterprise. And we were playing a lot of music and going out and playing, um, at least, you know, twice a week we were, we were playing shows. This is my brother and I and our buddies. And, and, um, 
and so the summer before before I was going to go on onto that college to play saxophone to major in music performance um, and music business, the band was just kind of the wheels were turning, and so I, I kind of thought, you know, I, it sort of feels like it'd be pulling my foot off the gas of something that seems to be. You know, the doors seem to be opening and we were very busy and people seem to be excited about it. And it was so anyways, I said, well, I'll, I'll I'll do this band thing and sort of focus on that. And if I ever wrap myself back around to going and playing saxophone at school, I can I can figure that out later. Um, sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, you were the first ever left handed guitarist that I ever saw. I thought I, it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. and I was just stunned. I was just stunned, and everybody said, you know, I asked, like, what, what's unique about his guitar? And they said, well, he's just playing left-handed. It's just, it's just, that's it. It's just a different direction. And I, I was stunned. I had to get a, I had to get a closer look, and so uh, it was, it was something that, you know, that also left an impression, because I was like, this is crazy and cool and unique and different, and to me, what that message was to, you know, the 13, 14-year-old self that I was when I saw it was, you can do anything. If you're good enough, you'll find a way. And if there isn't a pre-existing way, you'll make a way. Um, sure. It doesn't matter, well, well, you know? And so, because it, you don't see left guitar so much. No, I just, I, yeah, I love that. I love that that's kind of how it hit you because obviously for me, it was just like, it was always such a, um, what's the word? I mean, it was always a drag because it was like, you know, they, they don't make that, that many left-handed instruments. And I remember my, when I walked into the guitar store right. for the first time when I was 14 with my dad to get an acoustic guitar, he was like, the, the guy trying to sell us a guitar said, you really should try to do this right-handed because your options, you know, will be so much greater. There are thousands of guitars for righties yeah. and just a few out there for lefties, you know? And I was like, man, I, I, I'm painfully left-handed. Like I don't do anything. Like I, I, I'm just. I, I can't do anything right-handed. You know. And so, there was yeah. one acoustic guitar, one Fender acoustic guitar in the shop, and we got it. And and so, yeah. Then over the subsequent years, I, I kind of went on a. Oh yeah, I I, I I bought guitars from all over the world just because it was like they were hard to find, you know? So there was, a, there yeah. were forums and stuff online, you know, where it was like, Hey, left, left-handed guitar player forums, if you're looking for this. So, so, but it's definitely a specialized little thing, but mine was just a, a, a normal guitar, um, a, a mirrored normal guitar, just strung up for a lefty, mm-hmm. but I mean, and built for a lefty, which, but, but then I think about guys like Jimi Hendrix who just took the guitar and just turned it upside down and the heavy E string was on the bottom. I'm going like, that's just unbelievable to me that this guy could do that, you know, and, and uh, somehow extract all that muscle out of that guitar without being able to have his heavy E string on the top to really dig into, you know. Yeah. Just goes to show how, how, how sick he was, how, how awesome he was. But yeah, but yeah man, that's, that's really cool that you would say that. I always felt, it always felt, I, obviously people would always say, you're left-handed. You know, it was almost like, wow, you, you play left-handed. <laughs> it's like, I, yeah, right. I don't know what else to do. 
right? <laughs> yeah. No, I like that. I think that's so cool. I want to I want to go back a little bit. Um, you know, you talked about growing up in very musical home, and a big portion of that was your parents were vocal performance majors. Uh, do music in church? Um, so I'm I'm putting the assumption out there. So it was a pretty religious or spiritual household that you grew up in, and and kind of shaped you as far as some of your views. Yeah. Um, so yeah. let's walk through. Uh, how that impressed upon you enough to, I know we're going to get there in a minute, but impressed upon you uh, to take your project, which ultimately became the Elms to Sparrow Records. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> you know, it was, it was really interesting because yeah, I grew up in church, have some very vivid and wonderful memories of, of being a kid in church and, you know, um, having a, a, our family was just very connected. I feel like fortunately many of the churches that I went to with my family were, uh, were, were great outreach oriented kind of places and, um, doing unique things, helping people out a lot. Um, not without moments of dysfunction, obviously, but certainly, but certainly there were a lot of good things. I try to remember the, the, the good stuff as much as I can. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I think that, you know, we, we just, we started touring when I was about 18. Um, my brothers, my brother and I had a, had a band and which became the Elms and, um, which became the Elms in, the year 2000 but we had been touring prior to that anywhere we could play you know what I mean and we were obsessed with Britpop bands and we were obsessed with um, American bands when I say Britpop I mean almost like um, at the time that would have been just after the way of the Verve and Oasis and Blur and uh, Long Pigs and bands like that um, the Mystique of all that and the energy of all that was very exciting. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and so I think that, um, as far as the spiritual side of it goes and getting in touch with Sparrow records, it was, you know, uh, I don't know. It was just this kind of thing where I, I guess I was fan. I was a fan of so many different kinds of music. I guess maybe I was like, well, a label like Sparrow probably can sympathize with what it's like to be a, a guy with a spiritual makeup trying to be in a rock band. Sure. You know what I mean? And so I think that that, yeah. that was the major kind of impetus for that. We, we had um, gotten into some competition, like a couple of those, there used to be these things. It was, well, you know, it's a little like almost like these American idol kind of things. There were these competitions that would go on, put on by the gospel music association and put on by different things. And we got into a couple of those and found ourselves at SIR studios in Nashville in a rehearsal room. And basically the, you know, the four of us standing there playing on stage and just like every label was there like 12 people in the room, but they were all from, <laughs> you know each of the record labels in town and uh and and this one guy this one gentleman bill Baumgart, really liked the band he was at sparrow and i remember uh um fr from the time that we started talking to them to the time we signed with them was about 18 months uh, it was you know real wow. really kind of um took our time 
you know, because we were working yeah. a lot and really made, wanted to make sure that, uh, but, but it ended up working out that way. And, um, I think that that's kind of what motivated it was just like, Hey, look, you know, um, I think that these people, even though kind of thought of ourselves as a rock band, we certainly, um, or at least three fourths of us had a pretty focused spiritual makeup, which wasn't always evidenced in the music, I would say, but we didn't want to feel like it was weird if it was. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally get that. You know, and I think, I, I think what's interesting to me as someone who came from a, a very religious background and still considers himself spiritual, if not religious at all anymore. Um, but what was interesting to me um, and what I appreciated was this, um, oh, how do I want to frame this? I think it was, it was, I, I will say this amongst myself and my friends, the cool bands to like were the bands that were under a Christian label. So your parents would buy you the CDs, but were music that sounded like something that you would hear on the radio or possibly was being played on the radio. So, I mean, we're talking about the Elms. We're talking about how Adam LaClave from Earth Suit is on this volume. And so I had the Earth Suit album and then some PAX 217 um, and then some Reliant K. When you mention those names, I just think about those guys and I haven't thought about those guys in a while. And I think about them and, and, and the things that, you know, that, that just, that's really cool. Those are, those are, you'll have a wonderful time talking to those dudes. They're really wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And it, you know, overall it's just, um, it was, it was helpful because I think it, it, it was a peek into, uh, for me, a way of living where it was like, hey, you can still have this kind of spiritual element if it feels sure. true to you, um, but you don't have to only be, you know, if the religious trappings or the religious makeup doesn't work or make sense, that's fine too. And you can still find your truth in a lot of different ways. Um, and that's what I really appreciated. I mean, you know, the the big surprise was one of my top five albums I rotated through in uh, my CD changer. So, I mean, it was, it left an indelible impression and it, it, cause you could hear, you could hear that authentic authenticity ringing through. So we're, yeah, you're absolutely welcome. And so when you're talking about these, these competitions is almost like a little bit of a, like a battle of the bands, but more dressed yeah, up them, kind of a thing, or was it less called a them showcases? Um, oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, yeah. you do this thing where, um, you know, you would send in a tape and they would listen to what, however many, this collective of tapes or, 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 or demos or whatever that they got. And then they would pick five bands to play at this kind of industry. Um, symposium. Like showcase for everybody. Yeah, yeah. And so it was always very you know, weird. It was just very weird. But I, but I just remember just the, there being a tiny little audience, you know, it's, it's just this tiny, tiny audience of just like a couple dozen people or something. And you're playing and you're like, you know, rocking it, you know, doing everything you can do to kind of lay it, lay it bare. And, and you're, <laughs> you know, but it ended up working out. It was, it was cool. I mean, um, it, yeah. So that's, that's what I'm sort of referring to is that type of experience where it's almost like this little showcase and somebody calls you up one day and goes, Hey, uh, you, you're, we're inviting you to come play. You'll be one of five bands to be able to play at this thing. And, uh, you know, so I was like 19 or, 
whatever it was, uh, that, like I said, that year, that semester before college, I was going to go to college and sort of getting hit up with things like this. And it's like, well, it seems like an opportunity, so let's go do that. And of course we knew who Sparrow was. I mean, the, the bulk of the music that I listened to was, um, on the bands that would have been quantified as Christian artists were kind of fringier artists. Um, but, but certainly that was the, the, the biggest label, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, you're listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and we'll be right back after this. People got a thing for the dangerous. Find it inside the best of us. Take it what they want like it's so to them. Some of us do the best we can. Some of us do the best we Welcome back to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw. I'm here with Owen Thomas. And now I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to tell the, the concert story. So um, I've, told, I've told part of this on the podcast before. So what, I usually, what I've grown up telling people is, um, so I went to two concerts within about a week or two weeks of each other that were my first ones. I'd been to ones at church, but I didn't really, you know, that's not the same as like going downtown Dallas, going to a club, feeling, you know, feeling the vibe and the energy. Yeah. So I went to two and the first one, um, people are like, who, when I start talking about who is there. So I always just default to telling them the second one, yep. which was Blink-182 and Cypress Hill. Um, wow, wow, wow. People know who those groups are, yeah, for sure. which is a weird eclectic duo to awesome. play together. But yeah. yeah, no, it was it was a unique experience. I loved it. But the very first concert I went to um, was the, I forget the name of Bleach's tour, but it was Bleach and, and the Elms were the two headlining groups. And then, of course, there was a little known band called Sanctus Real yeah, that would yeah, open yeah. for y'all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, it was something where the Elms had, con so I uh, went to, grew up in a pretty big church, First Baptist Euless, uh, here in the Dallas-Worth Metroplex, and and the Elms had come to play uh, at our like Disciple Now or camp like a couple of times. Sure. And that was where I I um, got the big surprise and listened to it a bunch. And I had a buddy of mine that was going down to the door in Dallas for a concert. Um, RIP, it's not there anymore. Um, yeah, and he, he was like, hey, man, do you want to come along? I'm going to see this group Bleach. And I'd only heard Super Good Feeling. I didn't know a lot about Bleach. Yeah. I was like, I don't know. I don't know how they are. I'm not, you know, I only know the one song. I'm not really sure. I'd love it. Who's, who's playing with them? And he's like the Elms. And I'm like, all right, I'm in, I'm in, I've seen the Elms. I know the Elms I'm in. Awesome. And so we went and what I loved about the concert, this is what hooked me on live concerts, which I, you know, cause of COVID we're not doing right now, but I'm excited to get back into <laughs> the world of doing it again, hopefully. But but got in there and felt the energy in the room, which was markedly different than anything that I had gone to with my church. Oh, yeah. And I could feel this like raw vibe of pure emotion permeating the whole audience. And when Sanctus Real warmed up the crowd, um, which was awesome. And then when the Elms came on stage and you kicked it off, I think it was, you kicked it off with, Hey, Hey, okay. and, the entire crowd's just clapping and rocking and chanting along. 
and it was like, I was hooked. I was like, I don't know what this is, but this is the most spiritual experience I've ever had in my entire life. It was incredible. And then Davey Basinger came on with Bleach and his crowd surfing. And I'm just like, what the fuck is this? This is incredible. Like, this is absolutely insane. My mind's blown. And I say all of that because I think it's important for folks to know um, I feel like if they're listening to this, they're already aware of it, but that mm-hmm. music and has this, as we talked about earlier, has this ability to connect an entire room of people who have different thoughts, different feelings, different maybe political views or personal views, whatever. But for that moment, we are all this collective energy and it feels like you're unstoppable. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think in particular... Um, at its finest and at its humblest and its most um, raw, I think that that's something that that rock rock and roll bands, um, rock and roll music is is for. It's it's this it's this really kind of primal thing, and people. Uh, yeah, I love I love the the part about it that is um, communal connective um there's just something about rhythm and there's something about uh it's it's the way it all comes together at one moment and especially if the band is very present um and is not sort of thinking too um what's the word i'm looking for they're not overthinking the process it's like like one thing i always loved about performing was kind of being available to whatever was going on and um meaning to appreciate and embrace the unexpected things because you know i i I certainly had my perfectionist moments and that's on stage when i would one of us would miss a note or we you know screw something up or or the sound was weird or the lighting was weird or whatever Um, but when I would obsess about those things and overthink those things, um, it just, it was not, it wasn't very fun, you know? And it was kind of almost like the whole energy of the places where I think of it like being a, um, you're almost like an orchestra conductor, you know? And whatever your attitude is, whatever your, um, demeanor is, you're conducting that audience and, um, they tend to come with you they tend to jump into your current with you. And so, you know, that's, that's, that, you know, that's just such a cool thing whenever artists are present, available, going out there and um, being squarely in the moment and inhabiting their songs and just really having a good time and having a blast. I almost feel like it's more important for artists to have fun than for it is for them to be exacting and, and uh, yes. prepared you know what I'm, you know what I'm yes. saying? Like, so <clears throat> our model was always, we rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. We rehearsed so much, um, when we were not touring so that when we hit the stage, it was like, we just, we didn't have to think about playing. It was already pretty, yeah. it was already pretty teed up for us. It was almost like the muscle memory was there. And, and if something different were to happen musically, that would be okay. Or something, the set list would change. That would be okay. Is it, nothing would rattle us. And we could just kind of go out there and go, you know what? It feels like right now we should play this song and we could, and we would just be open to that. So it's that, I think that there's that, um, 
like you're on a car and you don't know which way it's going to go. I think that that's also just kind of exciting, you know, yeah. uh, for people and, and, um, a little bit of megalomania, a little bit of community, a little bit of recklessness yeah. and punk rock and it all kind of comes in there and it's very, very, very cool. And, and, and really wonderful whenever the artist is present and really available to an audience. Yeah, you know, you bring up a good point about about the being available because I have been to concerts where the band is focused on getting it right and really focused on, you know, this didn't work, let me do this or or you can and you can feel it it feels like and it's not for what I what I've always felt like it's not for the lack of the artist not wanting to connect, it's that they're they're so inside their head that it feels like there's this plexiglass in front of them and the audience, sure. you know. You can see them but you're not, you can't touch it. You can't touch the energy that's emanating. Yeah. And then when you have an experience where you're interacting with the audience, you're playing off the audience, it's like you come in with this big um, surprise. No, you come in with this big energy and, yeah. you know, and you're giving it to the audience and they're getting it and they're swirling around and they're pushing it back. And then you're taking it and pushing it back. I did, um, I did Tai Chi for several years and we would, we would, practice, you know, like passing a ball back and forth and then working on passing your energy back and forth, call it chi, call it energy, whatever. And that's what right. it feels like at a concert. You're passing back and forth until the end where you just throw it up, you know, throw the energy up in the air, absorb it, and then it's done. And that's kind of what it, it feels like. And, and it, it feels in a way, you know, this is a spiritual, uh, the spiritual themed <laughs> volume. It feels in a way that we're going to church, you know, it's like the, the spirit, the experience that folks get from, from, uh, going to church or going to, uh, other religious institutions, um, for a service, that's what it feels like for me. And I know for a lot of other folks, when you're in that concert space. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's all, that's all really a great way to put it. And, um, you know, I can think of the, the, um, you could always, yeah, like you said, you could always tell when a band was thinking, you could feel the, 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 um, the razor's edge of like tension, like, like they're on stage and. Oh, this is not going as planned. Oh, this is, uh-oh, there's some kind of, and I just sort of feel like that whole part of the equation, the idea of the audience feeling any tension or awkwardness or that there's any issues of preparedness or, or technicalities or logistical things or things not, they should never feel any of that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And the thing that was always just the most fun for me was um, was the front man side of it, you know. So as yeah. it pertained to writing songs or playing instruments or um, all that stuff, it's like, you know, that's that's one piece of this whole thing that I, you know, could look back at and go, hey, this or this I could have done better, or you know, or how how good was I at this one thing, or how. Um, uh, gifted was I at that or but the one thing I really loved was that that front man role and it wasn't because it was like hey the big white hot spotlight in front of people and it wasn't about attention it was just about um, it was just about the idea of that that at any given moment 
if you would just go for it, that people would kind of follow you. And if you would just yes. really turn your, if, if you would have the guts to open your heart and to try something, um, that's where the spoils were. Like that's where the, yeah. so a lot of people sort of feel like, well, we may not want to push it that far on stage for the, because we might lose someone or we might say, or do, whereas for me, it was almost like, I'm really interested in how far I can take this on a personal yeah. level with these people or where I can be the conductor to take them. It sounds a little bit manipulative and maybe it is, but it was kind of like this thing that was, um, I just loved Freddie Mercury and I just loved uh, watching Robbie Williams at the time doing his thing. It was, it was really funny and, and charismatic and, I always loved um, the great frontmen of the age. That was a thing that, and and how, <clears throat> when it was a whisper, it, it the audience knew, and when it was an uproar, the audience knew. And it was it was a very, um, it just seemed like a maybe a good conversation was supposed to feel or something, you know, yeah. moments of jubilance and yeah. moments of yeah. hush. Yeah, I love it. Now, I want to talk about, since you, you brought up songwriting, I definitely want to get into uh, the the actual, or a couple of the different albums. So, talked about Vima Sparrow Records. You had two records. You had The Big Surprise and then True Soul Rock and Roll. Yeah. So, I know there's there's a lot to cover because it's been 20 years, right? And then you talked about, with me a little bit off air, the, the box set just being released earlier this year. And then a lot of celebration of 20 years of the Elms. So we'll do our best to cover all of it in this segment. Um, but um, we could have like three hours just on the Elms uh, content by itself. But but I digress. So I want to, let's take, let's kind of take those two albums a little bit, uh, one and two together. So they were released 01 and 02. And I want to get your perspective on you know, we talked about being part of Sparrow Records, which is huge uh, record label in general, and then it means everything in the Christian music industry. So, how did you approach writing both of those albums, where you could have this sort of, for lack of a better word, secular music feel, but still stay true to uh, folks who want to stay in the Christian music lane, who are buying the the music i mean one of the things that i think and i'll use this as a kind of a lead-in for you one of the songs that i absolutely love and i i even messaged you that my kids discovered it and we're rocking out to it a couple of weeks ago speaking in tongues and um you know that's something that is to me as somebody growing up in in the christian faith a very obvious um allusions to or metaphors for or um, um what's the word i'm thinking for uh, acknowledgement of um, something very prevalent in the Bible in the Acts church and then people speaking in tongues and, and connecting with each other and their you know, brothers in the Christian faith, that kind of stuff. Um, but then there are other songs like Hey, Hey, and um, I'm also thinking about, well, Hold My Hand is a little bit, could go either way, but, but other songs where it's not as obvious of the connection. So how did you kind of balance those two ideas when forming those albums and writing those songs? You know, Honestly, I don't know that it was always super conscious. I think, you know, you're just, because at the time I was probably 20, 21. And so um, I didn't really, I grew up in a musical family, but not a showbiz family. So it wasn't the kind of thing where you're always sitting there going to make sure that, um, make sure that you've really thought through the collection of songs. Now, I always wrote a lot of songs and picked what I thought were the best um, 
what I liked the most. Um, I don't think we ever felt the pressure, maybe is the word, to write songs that were disingenuous to us or, or maybe were going to be packaged and sold as more of a product for the church or for, um, you know, something more spiritual than simply our, our um, natural dialogue about those things. So say over the course of an album, you had a few songs that touched on it. Well, that probably was pretty natural. And then there was another song where it'd be like, hey, this is about a girl that I liked and didn't work out. Or this is a song about... You know, there's a song about um, people being annoying, or this is a song about, you know, just, or just whatever it was, whatever guys in rock bands write about. I, I don't think it was ever, um, I think that I, I recall conversations about what would play at radio. Um, sure. I remember a conversation one time where we got off the stage having played uh, for a big youth event, and they seemed kind of disconnected from what we were doing, and... Um, I had an agent of ours say, you know, you should play some worship music at moments like that. It has a way of drawing them in and kind of getting them focused. And I was just like, I don't, I just don't really do that. I mean, they're either going to like it or they're not going to like it. Um, <clears throat> um, one of the, I, I remember right before our first kind of, I know I might be not totally on track here. But I remember before one of our first big festival shows, um, we rehearsed for months. I said, hey, listen, we're about to start this whole festival thing. And, and we were so obsessed with the muscular side of rock bands. So we loved, you know, like I said, we loved Oasis and we loved Tom Petty and ACDC. And we loved, you know, these majestic mega bands that were so epic and kind of, you know, radical, you know, in our minds and, and huge. And and we always saw them as being so tight and and so connected and so in order to be present live it was like well we have to rehearse and i remember sitting there in my parents garage with the rest of the band and going like we're not going to be we can't be the crappy band on these festivals and on these tours we have to work because every band out there we're all gunning for the same thing we all want to be the best band ever and we have to we have to we have to go out there and hold our own like we can't go out there you know <laughs> and then when we went and played one of our first festival shows i remember thinking to myself okay i was familiar with some of the bands and not familiar with some of the bands and i thought to myself i'm gonna go out and just sit out at the front of house by the console and i'm gonna watch every band and sort of see where we measure up. Are we, sure. do I feel like we can hang? Do I feel like we got a lot of work to do? Do I feel like we need to get back in the garage? Do I feel like, okay, let go a little bit. I want to just go with the ride, you know, or just whatever and just yeah. see. How... And I think this was my first kind of real introduction into what I would call like the culture of maybe, um, Christian youth and things like that because what I observed yeah. was, it was almost like I felt like maybe with the exception of a couple of bands um, I was like I felt like we had I felt so um, like we were fish fish out of water like I felt like we were in the, in the yeah. wrong so I watched all these bands band after band after band play and it was like 
we had been so focused on being a good band and being tight and being um, just pouring ourselves into the familiarity of things like the blues scale and understanding our songs yeah. and understanding lyrics and dynamic and things like that. And then I would, a, a lot of the other bands, it was just a different type of approach to performing live. There were a lot more um, things going on on stage that were for the purposes of like crowd interaction. And, and there were kind of like a lot of um, call and response and, you know, just all these different things. And I remember sitting there just like, like my eyes, you know, like saucers going like, what are they doing? Like, I didn't, I didn't even, I didn't really kind of, you see what I'm saying? I know this sounds weird because I, yeah, I, I, grew, I grew up in the church but for whatever reason, maybe I'm just an idiot. I don't know. But I just kind of like all the bands when I went to see shows when I was in a teenager, you know, and I was going to see bands that are more of that stripe of a, of a spiritual stripe. I was going to see, you know, Driver Aid and like Poor Old Lou and like, you know, bands like that, and, yeah. you know, basements, you know, and and we were all just sitting there kind of Starflyer 59, you know, and just kind of like, you know, um, <clears throat> so it was just really, that was kind of like a, almost like a, a real quick introduction. Hey, you just started off down this road and there might be an audience here that is either going to have to adjust to you or you're going to have to adjust to it. And yeah. we made the decision to, they're going to have to adjust to us. Like, that's just, I remember walking backstage and seeing the guys in the band and I went, well, we've been rehearsing the wrong thing. <laughs> you know, like, like, we, like yeah. we've just been sitting there worried about, you know, guitar tones, you know, and like making sure that we're really tight and making sure that we're all in sync and making sure that our band has this muscular sound and everybody else has been rehearsing something totally different. Like, you know, it's just like. They've been rehearsing how to kick beach balls into the thing. We don't know how to do that, you know, like whatever. And so we just all sat there and looked at each other and went, you know, do we want to do we want to kick beach balls around? And it was like, no, no, not really. Well, hey, let's just roll the dice. We'll just go out there and do our thing, and whoever comes along comes along, and whoever doesn't come. But I think that uh, no, I know that was kind of a long story, but it's like, um, but Sparrow was always very supportive of us and, and, and letting us kind of go in there and just chart the chart the records we wanted to make. And, and I think um, we're very open and supportive in that way. But then I think also after that second record, it was, it was pretty much like, well, you got, after that second record, what was really interesting was all of our opportunities were starting. It was like, Hey, you know, your video's getting played on MTV and like uh, get, yeah. the Goo Goo Dolls want you to go on tour and like think, you know, there's like, so Sparrow was kind of going, I don't, you know, we don't really know what to do with that. Like we don't know what to do with, we know what to do with top, like, like adult contemporary Christian radio. And again, this is, right. they, they were the, they were, they would be the first ones to tell you that about us. But it was just like, we don't really know how to follow up something like you going out and doing a tour. Yeah, going out and you know playing with band of horses or playing with you know, it was like, we, but but we just thought it was, we just thought it was really really cool that those bands acknowledged us and um, and we were out there playing those kinds of shows and um, that was always a very organic thing. Like these bands would hear our music and then find us and ask us to go play shows with them and so that's after this that second record. I think we all looked around and went. 
Yeah, this just kind of isn't our scene. I don't know that we were ever meant to be. And, and, and again, it's almost like you just live and learn. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you kind of... Um, yeah. I, I don't I don't think we ever went in with, like, blinders on, like, oh, this is going to be an uphill battle. We just It's just the way it worked out. Yeah, and, you know, it's a good... It, it's an interesting point that you bring up about folks having to either adjust to you or you having to adjust to them. And I will tell you, one thing that resonated with me, one of the times that you played at my church or whatever event, whether it was camp or disciple now or whatever, whatever the fuck it was. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> y'all played. And I remember, so, you know, I was in a fairly mega church where they would bring in all of these big groups like yourself. And, sure. and so I will tell you the structure of these concerts when they bring folks in is they would play their, their original material, but they would always play their material that, pretty much had a, um, either a, a spiritual reference or whatever. And then they would segue into a worship song. Like you're, you're talking about the agent saying, and then that would draw the crowd in. And then it would, it would, it was no longer a concert. It became like a conversion event almost. And I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily mean that in a negative way. It's just like, that's what the people who put on the event wanted yeah. without knowing what they wanted. And so I remember when y'all came in, I was excited because it felt like something different and invigorating, but I know the folks that I was around were irritated that they didn't hear like, you know, it is well or something else for the umpteenth time and didn't get to raise their hand and speak in tongues or, you know, whatever. And, and there was this like weird bitterness among some folks that were very like true to the church in that they were like, well, they're not a worship band. I'm like, no, they're a rock band. They're, they're like so much better than, than what I'm accustomed to. And it became this like almost rock and roll energy where it's like, this is who we are. We're authentic. We're, we're, we've got our own sense of spirituality, but we are authentic and we're bringing our truth to you. If you can't accept that, then that's not our problem. It's the, we're very transparent with who we are and what, what we're about. And, and so I can see, you know, and then to your point, there were the other, these other groups are kicking beach balls into the audience and, and doing all this kind of crazy stuff. And, and I, I have all of that as a through point because well, that's not it a, felt that's like, no, no, no. And I don't mean it as a dig either. Like, no. Yeah. 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 No. Cause I, I just remember watching them going like, it was almost just like a different universe of, uh, of influence. Yes. You know what I mean? And yes. But what you're talking about, though, like that happened to me all the time. Like it was, it was almost like um, it. It was a really weird thing because we were playing clubs and theaters and churches and all this different stuff. Um, uh, but anytime we played a church or a church-like event, I think I always knew that the subsequent moments after the show were always going to be. I was, I guess I always kind of felt like we didn't, um, uh, this is not me pouting or something, but it's almost like we felt yeah. like we had, we had let people down in a way because it was in a way I think yeah. that they yeah. came, they came and there was a, almost like a, a service that they expected the people on stage yes. to offer them. And it, it was a very specific thing, um, and we just kind of, I always felt like we didn't really do that, never even really tried to do that or weren't very good at that or didn't feel like that was our job or something. 
Um, so yeah, I, I would say almost after every show that we played, where there was an the whether it was sponsored by a church or, or, or a church-based type of thing, I would always have people come up to me afterwards and be very disappointed um, and always say things like, you know, we bring our kids here to have a safe environment and you're up there playing, you know, Neil Young song, you know, like a Neil Young song. You're up there, you've got a, you've got a T-shirt that says the Kinks on it. And I was just, I, I almost like, I, I yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. I do. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't, like you, you almost don't, you don't know exactly kind of what to say uh, in the sense that I, I can't, um, I, I just like the kinks. I don't know. I just think that that Neil Young song is, is, is awesome. I just like, I like, um, or, or I remember one person saying one time that, that the music didn't feel safe because of the like um, the the rhythm, you know, the rhythm, and there was like guitar and stuff like that, and guitar solos in a certain way, and they were just like it feels, it it, it feels like the '60s made us feel or something like that, and I just went like, well, I mean, I, I mean, again, I I don't I, I don't. I think it was just always one of those things where I would be backed into a corner by a gaggle of angry mothers, going like, "You're you're you're providing yeah, an uns- you're providing an unsafe environment for," and and you know, as a as a as a twenty one year old dude or twenty two year old dude in a rock band, you're just going like, "I mean, I'm just out here doing my level best." I don't think that they could really understand her. It was almost like, boy, the amount of care that we put into this the being a, a decent band <laughs> like it was almost like you almost ho- well you hoped that, that they would appreciate that like you'd hope that they go wow it's obvious that you've you fine-tuned this this whole thing a little bit you fine-tuned your your sound and you've you fine-tuned the songs and you fine-tuned the presentation here but it was always a little anyways not to not to get too deep in those weeks but it was always it was a really interesting feeling to go out there and feel like I know my brother, I know my friends, they're decent dudes, um, but somehow <laughs> you come off stage at First Baptist Euless and it was like you were a disappointment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, and, and this is so weird, and I don't, you know, and you brought up a good point, like this is not a dig to, to any groups or any other groups that played there, but it was something where it was, no. it was, it was, they, you know, it was, they wanted a certain experience as far as what they wanted to do. You know, oh God, I, I, I struggle to find the exact comparison for those who are listening, who have zero idea what we're talking about. But I guess, I guess in a way it would be like if a corporation hired a group to perform at their company party or whatever, and they, you know, expected a certain deliverable and the band didn't deliver on that. But the difference is in those types of situations, there's a contract and there's an outline of what we want you to do and what we want you not do. And everybody signs, and everybody agrees and whatever. And there's a similar thing, but there's this like unspoken contract about like, well, you know, in some, some situations, I'm just going to throw that disclaimer out there. Some situations, people I've been in meetings where I'm not going to name names, but churches have measured the success of an event by how many kids quote unquote came to Christ during the event. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of that was attributed in those situations to who who was speaking, what who was the band that was playing, and how did that turn into a um, a number? 
And it's a very like business feel in a situation that is told that it's not like a business kind of a thing. And so it's just a little, it's a little odd, um, was my experience growing up in it. And so in my opinion, looking back and having been in those meetings later on, um, which is part of my journey into leaving uh, religion. But um, in my opinion, um, that was what the unspoken feeling was with some folks um, that were not some angry mothers, but were like other other individuals. So I, I, I attribute that feeling um, in the, like being in that environment. And then when I saw y'all in the door or in the door, at the door, and then it was a totally different experience and everybody was buying in and it was so spiritual and everyone was rocking and rolling. I went, this, this is the, this is it. Like, this is what it's all about. Not whatever people were upset about some unspoken thing over there. So all of that to say, I think you're right in that you were able to be authentic and able to get the ball rolling with the records at Sparrow. But I do agree that it's like, okay, now it's time to kind of progress and, and move on to something different, a different project. Yeah. And that kind of brings us to the, the chess hotel, which is a real, in my opinion, grounded bluesy feeling rock record mm-hmm. that is, to- is not, I don't want to say totally different from the other records, but I want to say is the next logical evolution sure. to me in the Elm's journey. So talk about putting that record together now being absent of Sparrow. Well, after we left Sparrow in, um, I think it was 2003, we kind of, um, I think we knew pretty quickly that it was like, well, it would seem a little counterintuitive to go and find another label that kind of, brokered in the same type of business as Sparrow. So we thought, okay, well, we'll go try to find another label to work with that doesn't really even endeavor in this whole kind of church side of things and, and um, <clears throat> religious side of things. Uh, doesn't really have anything to do with us personally. It's just almost, I guess, what I would call like um, the the audience. Um, so we had just been friends for a long time with... Uh, um, a buddy named Van, Van Fletcher, who uh, had just started a new label with a couple of really, really cool producers, guys, uh, Tim Brown or uh, Tim Dubois and Tony Brown, who were two big country producers who had made massive, massive, massive hits with country artists in Nashville. And they were just starting up this label. Uh, it was a universal label in Nashville, and they were going to work on primarily red dirt American rock artists at the time that was uh, <clears throat> Shooter Jennings and um, Polly Williams, Cross Canadian Ragweed, uh, a few of these these bands that were kind of like, okay, so we all had kind of a toe almost in like American music or American rock or and, and some even leaned a little more country or Americana, but it was almost like a label that would in, endeavor there. And they had a couple of marquee country artists, you know, and stuff like that too. But, anyways, we always just loved this guy Van, and he and he just said, "So hey, so you're you're out of this deal with Sparrow?" We said, "Yeah." We kind of looked around for a couple of years, and kind of we we were just touring a lot and writing music, and um. But when we came up for air, uh, we we talked to Van, and he said, "Hey, you know, we'd we'd love to have you here, and we'd love to just kind of let you make whatever kind of record you want to make," and. Um, 
yeah, so that was it. And, and that was a label called Universal South. And, um, and uh, it, was, it was a kind of a short-lived thing. It was almost like, I think, within a year of us putting that record out, the whole enterprise got, you know, one of those things where it like rolled over into the Universal Company thing and this got shut down and that, that got re, restructured and all yeah. this kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> so... But we made that album. Uh, I think that was the first time that I <clears throat> wanted to unambiguously kind of go. All right, look. I've, I've, since I was, you know, since I was twelve years old, I lived in this. I've lived in this small town, and I sort of have seen this. There's this uh, archetypal small town grit and sort of darkness yeah. that I really wanted to talk about in music. And then I, I think we were all at a point where the band had been playing. Nathan, our bass player had just joined at that time. He originally was going to play in our band um, early, early on. And it didn't, didn't work out. And then he finally, after our first two records, our, our buddy Keith, who played bass, he had just left the band and Nathan came in and Nathan was just a, we were so excited to have him. Keith was wonderful. Nathan, we had just known for a long, long time and loved the way he played the bass. And we had been touring and touring and touring. And I think we all went, hey, look, if we're ever going to make an album that we're going to cut top to bottom pretty much live, like get in a room and do this, you know, freaking the band style, do this, you know, the, the, you know, the way that our heroes did this this is probably the time to do that because we were so sauced up. Like we were so greased being on the road. We had, we had, we had done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows <clears throat> and um, road tested a lot of these songs. So we made that record in like a couple of weeks, went down to Nashville with our buddy David Bianco and he, he passed away actually uh, like, I think it was three years ago. Wonderful dude, engineer. And um, uh, I just got wonderful memories of making that record, but we went in and, and said, all right, well, Hey, you know, we got all these songs. I kind of wrote all these songs, but the realities of small town living. And even though we were gone a lot on the road, it was still observable for us living in Seymour. We were living in this small town and we never left there as a band, you know? And so, um, it was, t it just felt like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to make a concerted effort to, write this story out and it was very visceral stories that I knew people uh, about or how I had felt or things that I observed you know very <clears throat> first person and it just seemed like the only fitting kind of sound for that was to make it pretty raw and so yeah. we just went in and cut cut that record mostly live at a, at a studio south of Nashville that's fucking incredible I love that I mean it's it's have been such a blues fan myself and fe and loving that like gritty grounded exploratory feel. Um, I remember listening to it to the first time uh, in college and it, cause it came out in 2006, if I remember correctly. And I had just started um, freshman year of college that year. And I remember listening to it and going this is not the elms that i knew this is this is leveling up this is like level three elms kind of a thing and and it it you know once again found me where i was kind of on my journey and really um the layer of complexity that the music added for me was like you can be full like 
I don't know. I, I chart like a lot of pivotal moments in my lives with with records and specifically Elms records as well in this situation. And so I think about the youthful exuberance I felt with the first couple albums and then kind of that that Brit poppy feel is like, cool, you know, you're young, you're excited, you're can, excited to encounter the world. And then now it's like you've encountered the world and it's it's knocked you down a bit. Correct. And so you're, you're dusting yourself off, you're wiping the blood off your face and you're, you're ready to like, you know, put your gloves back on and go back to work. And, Mm -hmm. and that was, you know, it, it prepped me in ways I wasn't sure I needed to be prepped in. And then looking back in hindsight now, what is that? 14 years later, it's, 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 there's been a lot of hard living, you know, personally for me since then. And it's been, it's been something I revisit time and time again and, and just think about where I was and where I've gone. And so I hearing the background and the story of crafting that album mm-hmm. is incredible because you can, again, I can feel that energy coming off of the record. Yeah. And I mean, listening to you talk too, it, 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 I, I would guess that while it was writing those songs was kind of narrative for me, I would guess that there probably was a lot of, personal stuff coming up and out. You know what I mean? Where you're looking and you're writing this song about, well, I'm observing this person going through this thing and going through this um, really difficult, grueling type of existence. There's a song on that record called um, The Downtown King. And it was like, I looked at, I remember, (laughs) like, I remember having this moment where I was writing this song and then I was like writing this, like, oh, I saw some bunch of dudes somewhere and I was like, ah, these guys are douchebags and they were trying to be whatever, you know, trying to be cool or whatever. And then I wrote the whole thing out and I looked at this, I go, God, I do all this stuff. I'm awful. You know what I'm like? I was like trying to write all these things out like, hey, look at what these, look at what these idiots do. And then he's like, ah, oh, hey, the, the, you know, I, oh, the reflection is me. Oh God. You know, that but I think it was probably a lot of almost like subconscious things like that woven into those songs now that I hear you talk about it. And, you know, I, I, I uh, the, the struggle that I was almost like observing was very certainly real because I think in the, in those first two records that we were very proud of for Sparrow, despite the fact that we knew we were going somewhere that probably there was the possibility of being understood a little bit better. There was probably still a little bit of a feeling of like, ouch, you know what I'm saying? Like, ouch, I don't think they want us over there, Bobby. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) That kind of feeling. So, so I think that, um, you know, probably processing some of that stuff too, but, but I think that, yeah, that's, that's the one that I would say, like that record was, was the one that we all felt like, yeah, as, as far as being a musical unit, I'll even take myself out of the equation here and just talk about Nathan and Chris and Tom. I mean, they were just very, 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 very good at that time yeah. because we had played so much and, and it was a really wonderful thing to be able to be the singer and the writer in a band with such incredible capabilities. Yes, absolutely. Now, I know that we want to go towards the close of this segment, but I do want to briefly touch on two matters real quick. Um, and, you know, let's talk about the fact that you wrote this incredible solo album and, tw- and released it in 2012. Mm-hmm. And then following up from that, you've got the last, well, it, it's not necessarily the last album's record because you just really sidetracked uh, yeah. this year, but, but the great American R- mid range in 2013. So 
what was the impetus for you wanting to create your own record, which I, I don't know if this is the intention or not, but for me, it feels very like seven nation army, white stripesy. Mm -hmm. Like that's the vibe that I get from it. Um, specifically with who, with Houdini, that's just how I interpret, um, the song and interact with it. Mm -hmm. Um, this like, it's haunting, but also like there's this melodic pop sound to it where it evokes this safe feeling, but it's, it's got a dark undercurrent. So it's like, you know, like we're thinking about good times, but we're going through dark times, but maybe there's dark times ahead or, or good times ahead. Maybe this is behind who knows. Yeah. Um, so what was the origin for that record? And then following up, what made you go into great American mid range as well? So what, how did those two kind of book into each other? Well, the mid-range actually came out in 09, and it, it, it basically like was the last record that the Elms made, and we then disbanded in 2010. And so in 2000, did you re-release it in 2013? I think that's probably when it went out for streaming for the first time and all that kind of stuff. Okay, you know what I mean? Okay, yeah, so my so, chronology was a little off. Okay. Oh yeah, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, so, so like we when we made that record, it was just kind of like I know, it was just like we were really proud of that music. Went out and toured and, and did the whole thing again, and it was kind of like, you know, it just we, we just all kind of sensed that it was the end of this moment for that band, yeah. and um, that was tough but necessary. Came out of that experience, and right at that moment where the band was ending, I was going through a, a personal thing of my own in a relationship, and my brother was going through a divorce, and my, there was just like this string of, it's a very, very, very heavy, you know, because you wake up one day in this band that's been the cause of your life for the last 10 years, is kind of like, okay, that's not a thing anymore, so there are matters of identity that you're dealing with, and then heartbreak you're dealing with, and then watching your family go through this thing that was um, something we never thought we would endure. Um, sure. the, 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 the ending of my brother's uh, marriage at the time, things like that. Um, so anyways, it was a really heavy, heavy period. And I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. So, so with that, that album, that solo album in 2012, um, yeah, it was just me trying to cope. <laughs> you know, that's all that was. It was just, it was just going like, um, but, but I think that, I think that what was really interesting is I learned so much during that time. It's like, I, I almost feel like to really understand yourself, you have to lose things that are precious to you. And so there were a lot of yes. principle, matters of principle, um, and identity that I lost around that time and had to really, um, switch on Owen sort of Mach 2 and kind of yeah. go like, all right, so life as you knew it or as you thought it would be is is no more. And um, how are we going to cope with this? And, um, you know, I, I just, I just, I th I, it was a moment where I just had to give myself a lot of uh, distractions, where I, like try to give myself healthy distractions. And so I, uh, kind of really just deployed as much discipline as I could yeah. and let my behaviors really be dictated by my disciplines, not by my feelings. Cause my feelings at that time were, were, were very sad. I was just ready to sort of sink into the earth. And, um, yeah. whereas, so I said, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start eating clean and I'm gonna, I'm going to start my own little, like, 
you know, my little business, and I'm gonna and I'm and I'm gonna start working out, and I'm gonna start eating, and I'm gonna write music again, and I'm gonna eat. You see what I'm saying? Is so I just really, really, yeah. uh, just dove and, and pushed and pushed and pushed into all of those things um, until they until they kind of manifest themselves in in, in some clarity, and, and you kind of move past the things that were that were dark. Um, but but I really I love a lot of the songs on that solo album because I listen to them now and I go, man, I was really in it. Like I was really writing the exact way that I felt, um, you know, and I, I think, I think it's weird. You, you know, you don't always do that. You do it as much as you possibly can, but sometimes you're writing a song and you make little adjustments for commercial considerations or you make little adjustments for, for your ego because you want to say something that sounds cooler or harder, you know, or you make little adjustments based on what you think, uh, Bruce Springsteen would like, or you make, you know, whatever. But, um, at that moment, I just, I don't think I cared about anything. Uh, it was, it was, it was, but, but then that became a virtue. Um, yeah. and, um, so I'm really grateful for that album in that way that, that I got a chance to make that and, and, uh, feel some things very deeply and got, got to, to know myself very deeply. And, and, you know, I even think about a lot of the, the, the things that I did when I was in a band and then I learned just out of the departure of the band, I learned so much about myself that I would have, it's almost like there's so many things, uh, that I would tell, you know, like 20 year old Owen, like, Hey, like Marty McFly, like, you know, you're, you're like, you're like <clears throat> yeah. going back and telling his younger self, hey, you know, like slapping him in the face and going like, when you get up on stage and you feel like James Brown and you want to turn around and yell at your band for not hitting that downbeat the right way, just go with it and have fun, you know, like whatever, you know, so so I'm really grateful that we got to do that. And then, yeah, so so the mid-range was our last album that came out in 09 and, and it was just, it was just really cool. It was, it was like, it, it did really well, like meaning... It was an independent album, but it ended up charting really well, and and then um, you know got some top forty radio love, which was crazy. Um, and then yeah, so it was it was really funny. It was almost like a lot of people were just discovering us then, right. and then we and then yeah. it just seemed like it, we we all kind of went like yeah, there's something about the vitality here. We're just a little bit which it, kind of purists about this thing. Like we never want to get into this place where it feels like we're beating a dead horse. Uh, yeah. or it feels like, Hey, we're, we're kind of going on, we're hanging on to something that, you know, want to remember our band is, is doing our best to remain, uh, vital in our own hearts. Um, yeah. and so it seemed like that was the time to, to stop, which is why even like now it's the 20th year of our band's inception and they're like, I'm still so much like, Oh, Oh, oh I don't like nostalgia and I don't like, Oh, oh gosh, I don't want to do this thing. But, you know, it was a cool band, and I really liked being in it and uh, really proud of that work. So we were going to do a performance this year, uh, which obviously COVID has kind of postponed. We'll see if that comes back around. But then we put out this vinyl box set, which kind of – it's probably the thing that people have asked for the most from us, like, over the course of the last 20 years. Like, we're, we're going to get the vinyl. And it's just no, – we just never did vinyl. The labels never did vinyl. And um, so I worked with them to – and then I obviously I have a studio now. I have a – creative house a, a creative agency and so we just we, we build vinyl for other people all the time and i just said hey guys it's 20 years what do you think let's just do this thing and they're like yeah you know so 
it worked out. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Was well, we're as we're wrapping up this segment, um, something I do want to point out, you know, one of the things that I said that I felt from your solo album was this, this feeling of like a memory of possibly happier times and maybe an eye towards what it could be. But currently there's this like kind of dark undercurrent. And it's, it's so interesting to me that that's what I approached the, that's how I interacted with the record. That's what I took from it. Yeah. And to hear that that was essentially what you were pouring into it in your own way. Um, again, there's that, there's that feeling that one's getting off of the record that I think is so prevalent. And if there's one thing that we've been consistently touching on and, and focusing on is the power that music has to transcend the medium that it's in and imprint on one's own individual self. Yeah. And well, you know, that I, is and I, supremely and I, powerful. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's kind of a relationship record. I mean, it's just a heartbreak record and, and, and stuff like that. And I, I, uh, it was really, really, you know, what's funny is like, I just, again, I made it cause I was coping. It was never like this kind of thing where I sat there and said, okay, well it's still that my band is over. So it's time for the Owen like solo initiative. It was like, I didn't want to do that. Like I, 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 I wanted you had something to, to say. Yeah. I wanted to get into visual work, you know, and I wanted to, uh, that, so, so I was, I was sort of going like, I'm going to, music's going to have to take a breather for a while. I'm, I'm going to start making films and I'm going to start doing all this other stuff. And, but it just kind of came very naturally and it just kind of came out. And, and so I put it out and it's so funny because the really interesting thing for me is when I run into somebody and they say, man, um, like that record helped me cope with that very specific type of situation. Cause some songs help people cope because of their kind of broad strokes you know, and it's yeah. kind of like, so a song could say, don't give up, you'll be okay. And it's like, you can apply that to so many things. Whereas this was just yeah. about a very specific degradation and, and, and uh, disintegration of a certain type of relationship and how it, you know, it's like, and so uh, people will come up to me and just go like, God, dude. Like I just went through this thing with my girlfriend, and I listened to your record, and it's like I told, oh my god, you know, like, and, <clears throat> and so I'm always like, that's really funny to me when like people go like, well, hey, happy to be there for you in that moment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, you're talking about music taking a backseat and getting into a lot of visual stuff, and I'm excited to explore that aspect of what's been going on with Owen Thomas here in the next section. But for right now, you're listening to After the Encore. I'm your host Joe Shaw, and we'll be right back after this.
You're listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and I'm back with Owen Thomas. And now the Elms has disbanded as a group and you've moved on. And now you are, I really, this is what I'm excited about. This is what I knew the least about you. And I had to do quite a bit of research, but I want to walk through, you know, we talked about your breakup and uh, we talked about the, the album and kind of getting that out there. But let's focus on working on the projects you've, you uh, are you have the company Absorb. Um, I'm maybe in the title. Is it Absorb or Absorb Me or? It's Absorb. Absorb. Okay. Um, So you've got that company Absorb. You're working with a lot of other artists, helping them to tell their stories. But I'd love for you to walk us through how you got to the point that you're at now. And we can touch on some really cool projects I know you've worked on, specifically like the band Perry. They're no longer this country group that I was used to hearing. You know, they've got a totally different sound that's invigorating and exciting all on its own. Um, but le- yeah, let's chart the journey from you doing solo album, Elms disbanding, and all the way to Absorb. What did that look like for you? When when I was in the Elms, I became really obsessed with, um, I guess what I would call like uh, aesthetics uh, and really obsessed with identity. So the bands that I was really a huge fan of, whether it was Nine Inch Nails or Oasis or Depeche Mode or, or, or Tom Petty, it was almost like U2. They seemed to have these really good... Um, seem to have great vision, particularly from album to album. Um, and so I always wanted the Elms to be a band like that, where each of our albums had its own distinct identity. Um, but during the course of the release of that specific album, everything would be cohesive. There would be a good sense of purpose visually, musically, that it all would fit together. Um I just got I just got nerdy about everything from from typefaces and fonts to the visual systems to to films and and how they matched with music and somehow they foiled them and somehow they galvanized themselves and, and it's just all I, I just got really obsessed with it by watching the masters of aesthetic I'm I'm a huge fan of Trent Reznor's and the way that he um, has created an entire universe um, with such a distinct feeling anyways when we were working with labels even like Sparrow and and, and Universal South and stuff like that. It was like the zenith of the record business had occurred just before we signed. So a year or or a couple of years just before we signed with Sparrow was when groups like NSYNC and stuff were selling, you know, a million albums a week, you know, and things like that. So we jump in and we're working with this label. And over the course of working with this label, all this, the, the, the internet started to really show its power, particularly at the time it was with torrenting and things like that, and people were just buying less and less music. So a lot of the first roles at these companies to get let go, as they were kind of not, their revenues weren't as high, were like the the artist development people, the creative direction people. A lot of, so a lot of the people who, the nuts and bolts people, stayed there. But it was almost like... Um, art direction teams that the label employed, it was almost like, well, these, those were a little more of a luxury commodity now. And so they just weren't there. Um, 
there they were there when we were initially at the label but then by the time we left sparrow and by the time we got to universal it was almost like they were more of a scarcity so if you really cared about your band's identity and having a cohesive story visually, uh, you know, through the tours and through the, the, the web and through the films and through the music and through the whole thing that was, that was kind of a big cohesive story, you either had to hire someone to do that for you, like a creative director, which we couldn't afford. So I just kind of started doing it myself and learning, you know, and studying very, um, enthusiastically studying the great uh, aesthetic artists of the age. So studying a lot of Bowie, and a lot of Trent, um, and a lot of Depeche Mode and stuff like that. So so anyways, I would, I would say all that to just say that's where I kind of got obsessed with that and started doing that work for my own band. So after our second record, I was like, okay, I really want this third album to have a thing, a look, a feeling, a hue... Um, and everything that happens will have to fit inside a certain lexicon of thought. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so that was always our thing. And that was the same with our last record as well. So the, the, the sound of the last record was a little more hi-fi, so the visuals had to be as such. And so we had to get the right engineers and the right the designers who knew how to do these things. And, you know, so anyways, it was all this kind of stuff. And so then when my band ended people just started kind of calling me and going like, Hey, who, who did all that stuff for you guys? Because, because it was usually pretty buttoned up and I just went, well, I mean, you know, I just did it, did it for myself. I, because I, you know, just, there, it was just a resource that wasn't really available to labels as much anymore. And, and we, and you knew the band more intimately. You knew what you wanted as a person. You knew what you wanted for the group. And so it was almost easier for you to kind of work through some of those early ideas with something you some with a group you knew so intimately and you're kind of exploring so you're able to be like i think we like this for the feel let's try this that doesn't quite work let's try that i mean yeah so it make it kind of flows one into the other yeah yeah and it just and you just you can just kind of sense when it's work when it's right and you kind of look at it and you hear it and you see it and, and it kind of all goes like yeah this makes sense i think anybody who sees this or hears this will just get it I think they'll just, it's, it's yeah. going to be easy to understand. And you put a lot of work into the sort of details to make sure that the first impression that a person gets when they discover your band is simply like, I get it. And that's it. You know, it's just like, so um, anyways, it was 2010, uh, right around that time, uh, the band Perry, um, were just getting started in music and they called me up and they said, Hey, we were a big fan of the Elms. Would you, who did all that stuff? And I said, well, you know, I, you know, whatever. So I jumped out on the road with them and helped with some of their kind of initial, you know, I was doing some filmmaking and I was doing some design stuff and whatever. And over the course of that first year, obviously they went from being kind of a, you know, nobody knew who they were to a year later. It was like, you know, it was just a massive, like just really exciting kind of thing where they, where they kind of, um, blew up and it was really so cool to watch that happen for my friends you know and, um so anyways uh yeah it just it just it just became this thing where um i just started doing that for other people and i i i really initially focused on the film side of it i just really liked the idea of there are a lot of similarities in film and audio um and what i mean is that 
I almost treat every film that I make like it's a song. Like it has the dynamic opening and then it kind of like you hit to the chorus and there's got to be a thing in about 60 seconds that really charges you with some sort of emotion. And then you got to dip, then just dip, make them wait, and then boom, go out strong, you know, or whatever. It's like, yeah. it's almost like the, the filmmaking process was almost like songwriting to me and, and the construction of it all felt very natural. So that was really fun to do. And, so that led to doing stuff, obviously, for the Perrys, but making films for a really diverse number of artists. Um, uh, uh, Kishibashi and John McLaughlin and, and just a, a bunch of different types of artists, really indie bands and then really esoteric bands and things like that. And then doing stuff for the Olympics and doing stuff for the Obamas and doing stuff for like... Um, you know, Microsoft and just, you know, different things like that. But, but, but right, it, was, yeah. it was really, really interesting. And now I think that our, our agency absorb is, is really at our best whenever we're doing the, the campaign work. So, so whenever, yeah. you know, somebody comes in as an initial concept and then we help them grow the whole thing out, to where the whole campaign makes a lot of sense, every little component. And, and we really love doing that. And it's a really incredible sense of satisfaction when you feel like you've been clear and put out something that's really cutthroat on a visual level and a musical level and stuff like that. Um, but that people see and they just understand, they just get it. And because you feel like you've helped, you feel like you helped the artist or the company or whatever it is. 95% of what we do is work with artists, but you just feel like you've helped them be truthful. You've helped them be yeah. accurate and and perceived in a way that is perfect to them. You know, you have, yeah. you know, so that's a really exciting feeling to feel like you've helped usher a little truth into their universe. But then a, a couple of years ago, we sort of took an excursion into going, okay, well, so we've been an agency now for, you know, seven years. Let's try taking on an artist most of the time people come in and commission us to work for them. We'll make an investment in an artist, like a de facto label, do all the creative work that our house does for the artist, and then we'll put a record out. And so we put a couple of records out on a couple of artists, and both did really well. Um, and so now that's kind of become a primary focus for Absorb now, which is transitioning to being simply a commissionable agency into a, a developmental agency where we'll work with you know we've got a, a young pop artist now who's an incredible songwriter named Biam and a kid named um kid named josh that we're working with who's a rapper who, who's just freaking super next level and so you know and, and we work just just that's where my um just from the infant stages you know from when they're 1920 to help them start off on the right foot create a really warm and inviting universe for them to stay creative in know that they're supported when they have a dream about something musically or visually and then um just help them help help them you know get off on the right foot and and, and have a have a blast doing this i absolutely love that you know one of the things that really stood out to me and has stood out to me when, I, when I've looked through the groups that you've worked with, the artists you've worked with, the campaigns you've put together has been how, you know, you're absolutely right. It is the sense of like, I get it. I get whatever it is the artist is trying to say or the company or the message. I get it from like five seconds of looking at it. And 
selfishly, one thing that I've worked on doing for this podcast is really letting people understand that it's a long form retrospective. You know, each season is themed around a different thing. We got volumes, I do all that. Um, and I do find as, as excited, I think there's a little bit of the artistic side of me that nerds out on that. And I'm like, all right, well, I got to make it, I got to make it something where folks can get it just by looking at it. And so I, I do my best and, you know, it, I'm learning and growing every single time, but I do know yeah, right. But it is a it's a lot of work even just doing something as small as as what I'm doing and so to to have such large campaigns with the company that you've got and be able to on such a you know, scalable level to say this is what the entity is trying to say and this is why they're trying to say it is extremely difficult but you, I have to say you and your team pull it off exceptionally well. And yeah, I think it's very prevalent. And so I'd love to know like what has been something that you've really learned about yourself through that process. As you, over well, the years. well, first of all, I mean, I think, I think my whole life, I, I, <clears throat> I've been a, um, I don't know how I can say this, a, a person of vision where, where it's like, sure. when I go into something, I, I know exactly what I want. Um, coming up with concepts, with ideas, um, executable things, um, has just never been hard for me. Um, collaboration has been hard for me. Um, trusting other creatives has been hard for me. Those are the things, you know what I'm saying, that I've had to learn over yeah. time. Fortunately, my, uh, in our, in our studio, the guys who are there are just, wonderful bright guys who, who I love having as part of this thing and have, have got enormous amounts of trust in their taste uh, and in their instinct. I think the, the thing for me is um, a lot of time when, when people come and ask for us to do what we do, they come in and ask, they, they almost want an impartation of your taste, right? They want you to go like, hey, I've seen the work that you've done in the past and you seem to have a kind of a little bit of um, a vibe. And so, hey, can you bring some of that vibe to what we do? And the answer is like, well, I mean, if it, if it makes sense and there's a nice, cool thing that seems natural here, then yeah, sure. But also, I think what I've learned the most is to um, to kind of relax a little bit and enjoy the process and know that it's not really my job to imbue my visual sensibilities onto somebody else or to impose those things onto somebody else because really the the greatest gift that I can probably offer um, to any artist um, or anybody that we work with is that we've helped them be perceived in a truthful way or help them be more understood. We've helped them be truthful. And so I can't over, even if there's something I think would be really, 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 really cool well, of course, I'll talk to them about it. But if ultimately they're not feeling it, I have to be able to go, that's okay. You know, make a case for it, make a case for why. But then also be able to step back and go, man, this isn't about you all the time. This is about other people's authenticity. This is about other people's excellence. So I found more and more that... Um, being a uh, an advocate for for principle 
is something that I'm very passionate about. And those things that I'm most passionate about are excellence and authenticity. And so sometimes what I've had to learn is that there are points where you don't quit caring. You just, you just got to pull your ego out of it and, and not get so hurt whenever things don't swing exactly like you want them to. And so I feel like I've learned that and I feel like navigating how do I still give this person the best possible work that I can knowing that it maybe yeah. didn't go quite the way I had hoped, but that's fine. That's okay. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. What's, uh, what is something that you're, if you're able to share, what's something that you're currently working on that you're very excited about right now? The young artists, the yeah. young artists. Yeah. The new, the new artists that we're working with, um, um, are just are just very exciting. They're just so open. Um, yeah. I've been lucky to work with a lot of artists who are very open and who are very both have vision, but then also you know just are interested in, in discussion and collaboration and have 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 allowed me to speak into things. Um, but the young artists that we're working with are, are are what I'm most excited about because it's it's interesting, man. It's like every little triumph feels so important and like pure. So, you know, you put a song out and nobody knows anything about this artist. Like you're digging it out of the dirt. Like it's, this is a, you know, nobody knows who this artist is. And then you put it out and they get their first playlist and they get their first thousand listeners and they get their first, Oh, we just crossed 30,000 plays on Spotify. And we get the, it's just these little incremental things. And, and I always feel like we do whatever we can do to make sure that they are present for those things. Because on the surface right now, um, they seem very modest. You know what I mean? They seem like these little, very modest little benchmarks but when you look back on these things, you'll go like, ah, it was, it was, it was just such simple, grateful little moments that you see this progress, just progress. Yeah. And it's, it's really wonderful. And plus, you know, plus just some of these, these, these young artists that we're working with are just so, so good and, and so gifted. And so I love the idea of um, being able to take whatever it is, 20, 25 years worth of experiences and just it's almost like anything that they talk to me about they go hey man i'm going through this thing and i go huh, i've been there or they say hey, I'm I'm like that happened to me you know, hey man what should i do if the, well that happened to me you know it's all there's no it's all like there's no experience whether it's on the artist side or the facilitation of artist side that i kind of have an experience and that's really really cool and it uh you know, and then I'm, I'm in the studio with them or we're writing music and recording it and then we get done with it and we're hyped and then we go in and we just start building visuals across the hall, you know, and we start going like, hey, you know, hey, what do you think this would look cool with? Oh, it'd be cool if this was all like a screwed up looking whatever, whatever. And before we know it, we're over in the next room an hour later, you know, shooting photos on it and, you know, digitally manipulating stuff and just going crazy. That's just really fun stuff, you know, It's and, and it happens really briskly. Um, working with an artist recently and and um, just started working with them. 
<laughs> and it was like they played me a bunch of demos and I was like I really like this song here I think this is just a really really cool song we should get to work on it and he's like when do you want to have it when do you want to get it out and I was like I don't know I think we can have it up by the end of the week we could da, 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 da. we could have this out within like a month you know it's like it's just like yeah. as opposed to going well, well let's start the developmental process and then begin the right. and then begin discussions about a strategy and begin the meeting of a strategy meeting you know it's like it's like it just right. it just let's just let's just get to it and get to it and um Anyways, that's what I'm really excited about is that stuff. I love it. I can tell. And, and, and it, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and it's really cool because our little shop now, we just have artists through all the time. You know what I mean? And even if they're not yeah. an artist that we're working with on a pen on paper kind of way, they just come through and they just want to find somebody to give them an honest listen to their music or or they just want somebody who understands them to listen, or they just want to come in and sit down on the, you know, sit down on the couch for a minute and just talk about about their life and about their headspace and about what moves them or what hurts them or whatever. And, and, and so Absorb is kind of becoming, in our city, a hub for the heart of the artist. Um, and I'm really proud of that. I'm I'm really proud that that people feel like they can come through, and um, feel like when they when they step over the threshold and kind of come in that they're in a place where they're not, um, you know, it's no we're not really in the music business we're in the artist business you know yeah so it's like they yes. come in and they they, go like a, they they feel understood. I love that. Well, I've got two questions left for you as we're wrapping up this episode. First one is a little bit of an easy one. Uh, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, well, they can go to absorbme.com. Uh, my, uh, that's our website, our, our studio website. And then, um, absorb me in some iteration, I think it's absorb underscore me or our socials and stuff like that. But anyways, uh, and then Owen M at Owen M Thomas on Instagram and uh, Twitter and stuff like that. So that's the best way to do it. I love it. And then last question, if there's somebody out there who's listening, who's trying to break into the music industry, is there one piece of advice or one mantra that you've had for yourself that you would like to impart on these listeners? <sighs> Yeah, I mean, it's just it's the it's the it's just the greatest time to be doing this. Uh, you know, it's it, it's just like if you're patient and you're persistent, both. That's just such it's just such a it's just a ripe it's a ripe moment, and so I would say like um, just just be about putting music out, get it to the best place you can always be proud of it. Love the work that you do. Try to free yourself from the encumbrance of business careerism thought like that and know that just do something that makes you proud and that makes you feel like you're being honest. And those things have a way of, um, cultivating success in a way that's noble and, and cool and um, the wellspring of everything for me is credibility. And so I, I sort of feel like, <clears throat> you know, that's that's a worthwhile pursuit is to be taken seriously and to be honest with people. And, um, you know, don't put too much pressure on a specific song. It's just put a song out and then 
put another one out and just stay at it and, and just kind of, you know, it's a compound effect, I guess is what I'm saying. Like this, these things still take time. People are discovering music more than they ever have. And it's really, really exciting. But, but, um, it's like not trying to be unique, just, 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 just be yourself and, it, and you will be unique by default. And, and that will be, that will be really exciting for people to hear. Owen, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Of course, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk. Absolutely. Well, you're listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw. And here to play us out one last time is Owen Thomas. With a rosary I told the driver of the bus That he had a deal And by the morning I'll be with her In the golden fields I'm going back to Indiana now To see my baby in her evening gown
This podcast is powered by Roberts Media Group, your resource for podcast development. For more programming and advertising opportunities, please visit us at robertsmediagroup.co.